Bruce Walsoff is a composer and pianist whose work has been recognized for the way it integrates modern, classical, jazz, and blues together into an authentic American voice. In recent years, Walsoff has been composing music in response to visual art. Astronomer's Key, inspired by the artwork of Milton Resnick, was commissioned by the Roswell Artists in Residence Foundation for the Montage Music Society in celebration of the Roswell Artists in Residence program's 50th anniversary. The Loom, inspired by the watercolors of Eric Fischel, was commissioned by the Eroica Trio and premiered at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. For April, a work for cello and piano inspired by the charcoal drawings of April Gornick was recorded by Wolosoff with cellist Sarah Sant'Ambrogio and released as part of a book of Gornick's drawings. In July 2018, Bruce Wolosoff's Concerto for Cello and Orchestra was recorded in London by Sarah Sant'Ambrogio and the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra conducted by Bijagos Novak. A frequent collaborator in the field of dance, Wallasoff has collaborated with choreographer Anne Rankin on two ballets for Thoros Dance Chicago. The White City was named Best Dance of 2011 by the Chicago Sun-Times and a film edition of A Light in the Dark, based on the story of Helen Keller and Anne Sullivan, received an Emmy nomination for Outstanding Achievement for Arts Programming. Wallisoff's recording, Darkling I Listen, is being used for a new Anne Reiking ballet based on the life of John Keats. An accomplished pianist as well, Bruce Wallisoff received early acclaim for a recording of piano music by Busoni. More recently, he has performed and recorded his own compositions, including Shenandoah Variations, Many Worlds, Four Blues, and Darkling I Listen. Wallisoff's discography also includes Songs Without Words on Nexus American Classics. Mia sat down with Bruce in his home on Shelter Island to discuss his creative life and music. Bruce Wallisoff, welcome to the creative process. Hi Mia, it's so nice to see you. Yeah, so I've been enjoying uh, these last few days, um, seeing, listening to your work, and uh, I was wondering if you just tell us how you came to music. Music was always there. I don't mm-hmm. think I ever... There was never a journey to get to music. Mm-hmm. Um, the journey was in getting better at it uh, and getting skills. Um, but from an early age, there was a piano in my house. And I used to like to sit there and just make sounds. And I loved the way different sounds would make the room feel like a different place. And my sister, my older sister, who's uh, eight years older than me, had lessons... The teacher came to the house, and I couldn't wait. I wanted lessons so badly. And um, my parents asked him to give me lessons when I was two because I, I wanted them so badly. And um, he tried, but he said my hands were too small, so he started me when I was three. I, I couldn't wait. And um, So the thing I, I wish that someone had told me as a kid was that I should really follow my curiosity you know, I should really get excited about what I'm interested in and then find out about it, like, you know, research stuff. I, I, th- I think that's the thing I would encourage most in a kid. But something changed. Something changed the moment there were lessons. Suddenly there was, it was no longer about exploration. It was about right and wrong, doing it right to please the teacher. You know, um, somehow my center, my center was taken away. The music was no longer in my center. And it took a long time to find my way back to a place where where music was mine again. 
I think that that was part of the part of the journey transitioning from being a classical pianist to being a composer was somehow let, let's make it mine again. Yes, um, it's strange, it, and it's not about control exactly, but oh, you feel like when you're performing to to please others. It was interesting you were discussing that before. Yeah, I mean, what's what's your motivation for playing? Sure, mm-hmm. and do you want the applause? Do you want your parents' approval? Do you want the teacher to say you did it right? Do you want to you know impress the other kids in your music class? You know, or your the friends at school? Are you doing it because you love music and you, there's something you want to say and there's something you need to say and there's something that's very vital and urgent in the music itself that has nothing to do with the um, social terrain that exists around it. It's interesting, how, and I know because you have an educational project around music, the orchestra project, uh, but how much we really can learn from children about the joy of performing and playing and so much, so many of us really. For, you you speak about an issue for artists from many disciplines that they they lose contact with what drew them there in the first place. Yeah, yeah. The the, the material itself, the mm-hmm. you know the molten qualities, and, and I think it's you know it's subtle, especially you you see it, especially it's it's highlighted especially in the way music is marketed. As some kind of commodity, as you know, an entertainment, and something. Um, there's a sacred element that, for me, gets lost in all of that. Yes, and now I understand. Well, we're moving around from your very beginnings in music, and now uh, your projects now. But I know that you're embarking on um, doing compositions for orchestra. Yeah, I had a fabulous experience um, this summer, where um, the Royal Philharmonic recorded my cello concerto with cellist Sarah San Ambrosio and they recorded the Elgar Concerto also. It was just a great experience. It, it was my first time since student days that I got to write for a big orchestra mm. and uh, it felt so, I, I loved it. I loved working big. I loved the sound of it. I loved the feeling of it. I loved the whole thing. I can't wait. I just, I'm living to get back in a room with an orchestra again playing, you know, playing the piece I wrote this summer mm-hmm. or the one I wrote over the past month and I'm just I'm living for orchestral music right now Mm -hmm. I I, I like the whole I like the colors and and the scale of it and when you say you want to add flute color you're not just adding color you're adding what's the flute doing it's a gesture you're adding a gesture so there's many more layers of gesture than I've allowed myself in chamber works or in piano music There's, there's um there's complexity from from having all these colors and putting them into play. Well, it's so yeah, it's so nice, and you feel you can amplify certain things that you've been doing, and uh, it makes it uh, renews it what you've been doing. Yeah, yeah it certainly does. And and color was my my way in as a pianist too. Mm-hmm. I I was fascinated with um, the pianist tonal palette, and. And in, you know, in recent years, it's been more explicit with responding to visual art. That you know, what what inspires you to hear music, what inspires me to hear music, is is color. I think I'd love to uh, if you could share some of those memories. Your early, I remember uh, you had been as as a, a young musician inspired by go, uh, going to museum visits and seeing Van Gogh. Yes. But if you could speak about some of the other 
painters and artists who have inspired different works? I remember, um, I remember being in the Musée d'Orsay and seeing this Renoir painting that was um, an Algerian landscape. And I just, you know, I, I heard something and I, I, it wouldn't stop. And we are on a bus to, uh, to Chartres afterwards. And I wrote out this whole movement for piano concerto on the bus. I mean, I didn't write all the instrumental parts, but I wrote out the basic feeling of the music on a bus trip. Some, some artists have been more um, productive for me in terms of generating ideas than, than others. And, and you know, it, it's, this is no reflection on them. This is more of a discussion of affinity. Mm-hmm. And you know, I go, I go to, I'll go through to a museum and I listen to the exhibition. I walk through and I, I go to the paintings that call me where I think there might be music. Mm-hmm. And I do this all the time. Mm-hmm. And um, like I've never heard anything from Picasso. I have heard things from Chagall, especially yeah. when he's blue. Uh-huh. Uh, when his background is blue. Blue is, is actually a, a color that triggers a lot of sound for me. Oh, yes. We, yeah. we, I don't know if it triggers sound, but blue triggers something in me, too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's strange you didn't have it from... I, I, that's fascinating why you haven't heard from things in Picasso. Maybe because they're quite hard-edged sometimes. Well, not all, but I, I think I'd, I don't see a lot of movement in his paintings. It's like movement, but it's static movement. Yeah, I, I don't. Mm-hmm. I don't know enough about about painting to um, mm-hmm. to talk about his work, but uh, I just I can talk about my responses. Like for example, my friend Eric Fischel, mm-hmm. I hear music to his watercolors. I don't hear music to let's say the art fair paintings oh, yes. or, or any of those. And I hear music to my wife Margaret's work. Yeah, it's it's. I don't. You, somebody could probably look at the things I've chosen mm-hmm. and detect a pattern, um, but I haven't done that. In yeah, any kind it, of systematic way. It seems like the brushwork seems like when there's a more free brushwork, because I know Eric Fischel's. Uh, what about his sculpture? Do you have a, hear music to his sculpture? I, I don't think I've ever heard music to sculpture. The Rodin Cathedral with the two, with the two hands folded together, um, I almost hear something with that. Mm-hmm. So it's about, so when it's solid, it's harder. It's harder to see a vibra- or hear a vibration. Or yeah, it just hasn't happened, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I think I think color is part of it. Yes. Know. Oh, I'm, I'm not listening. It's the color part of it. I, I think see. so. Yeah. So, uh, no, so it's, yes, it, and you recently did the, the Astronomer's Key as well? Yes, that yeah. was um, on Milton Resnick's paintings mm-hmm. um, for the Roswell Artist in, Ro- Artist in Residence program for the 50th anniversary. Mm-hmm. I really got lost in that painting, The Astronomer's Key. Very vast. And, you know, first, the, the first challenge was to find a harmonic palette that corresponded to the color palette, to the color world of the painting. Can I mm-hmm. find, you know, every piece of music has a different tonal language. And so I had to find, I had to create a harmonic language that first matched the color. And then I had to find a way to put the colors in motion. And that painting has a lot of swirling figures, small swirls, and it, once, I, once I put it in motion, then, then the piece almost wrote itself. Once I found the color and found the, the um, motion generator. It's fascinating because, as you say it, I know it's not exactly an act of translation, but it sounds like an act of translation, your inspiration. It feels like an act of translation. I'm listening. I mean, I, I guess that's my primary activity as a composer is that I'm listening. 
I get very, very quiet, and you know, maybe there's, maybe I'll hear something very faintly. I say, what is that I'm hearing? You know, can I turn up the volume a little in my head? Can I hear it a little better? And um, and so then I, you know, I try to be as be as faithful as I can as a as a scribe, and, and you know, transcribe what I'm hearing. And then you know, of course, then you look at it and say, okay, what the heck is this? Mm-hmm. What am I going to do with it? You know, how do I treat it? What what scale is it? What key is it? What you know, the various technical things one does to to understand what it is they've created. And that you, that you then need to understand to try to put the thing into some kind of serviceable form. I always wondered because I don't. It's not that I'm tone deaf, but I'm slightly tone deaf. <laughs> and I wonder what it would be like to live as a musician who is so sensitive to sound. You know, you you've lived in Manhattan and now you live on Shelter Island, and how would these different places you've lived or visited, how how does that? How do you experience those? Um, you know, are there some like hostile tonal um, audio environments that I would be insensitive to, but you just oh I can't go there. This just drives me crazy. Yeah. Sure, sure, of course. Um, it's hard to be in a bright room, in uh, a, a sonically bright room. Yeah. Um, there there are restaurants I can't go to, mm. and, and there's an art gallery in town here that shows nice work. I just can't go there. You know, um, living in the city, I, I, was, I was troubled a lot by the noises. We lived on the corner of Broadway and Bleecker Street, and ambulances would go by a lot, and fire trucks, and all the sirens. And then there'd be, you know, the people who wake you up, the philosophers who yell in the middle of the night. Oh, philosophers. Yeah. That's what you call them. <laughs> um, Midnight philosophers. Yeah. You know, I, I think I'm oriented towards living via the ear more mm-hmm. so than the eye. My eyes are sometimes not really tracking. Like yes. I, I move around by radar and so, to some extent, which probably isn't a good thing. Well, it's interesting because I've also always been fascinated with, I mean, you're sighted, but with blindness and, yeah. how, much, and how perceptive people who have limited vision are, really, because they are paying a deeper attention to words or to sounds and that uh, that always impressed me because we we are we live in a very visual culture where we think we see things but a lot of us are also sort of sleepwalking you know we don't we're not paying attention yeah, yeah. maybe people aren't listening i mean I, i'm surprised people can put up with noise pollution the way they can mm-hmm. you know I, I i find it very troubling and i think everybody has a sense that predominates maybe in their you know in their personality and their and their makeup. For me, it's it's sound. And I'd love to speak. So we we're talking about where you've lived, and and now and now you're on Shelter Island, and how your music may have changed when mm. you changed your audio landscape. We just just speak about the work you were doing then, and uh, you know, up to well, today. I've been here a long time now. I've been here over twenty years, so I'd have to remember back. The biggest thing that changed. Was I was writing, um, oh, I don't want to say uglier. Um, <laughs> I was writing, harsher. Harsher. I was writing um, a more, I was working in a more dissonant language when I lived in New York. Yes. And um, when I came out here, um, a few things happened. Um, one of them was having a house fire and kind of having to start over and rebuild your life. 
after losing a lot of things. I, I went through a phase out here of, of reducing my language to a very, very simple harmonic language. And I think even too simple. And it, you know, it's a lot, it's the complexity has then grown back in, mm -hmm. but in a different way. My orientation is lyrical now. I don't know that it always was. Right. So it might have been that you would be drawn to orchestral work when you were in Manhattan, but because you came here, you were doing piano. Well, I, I didn't have, I, I never had those, um, no, the language is as distinct from the medium. Mm -hmm. Let's say I didn't have the opportunity to write orchestral music yes. after my first few student things. Yes. Um, my work, the work I got mm -hmm. was writing for smaller forces, chamber yes. pieces and piano works and some, some vocal music. But, you know, within that, are you using, what, what kind of sounds are you using? You know, is it dense? Is it open? Is it, you know, dissonant? Is it some degree of consonance? It's hard for me to, um, I think it's hard for everybody to talk about what they do. And I'm always slightly distrustful of people who are too articulate about their work. I think part of it is, is a mystery and will always be a mystery. And then you, you know, you study your mystery, you look at your mystery and and you know, with a sense of wonder, and and maybe you would try to apply um, an analytic eye towards it after it's already been, after, you know, looking back, which I guess we're doing now. I, I, you know, I don't know much about my early work. Ah, oh, yes. I, I, yeah. yeah. Well, I want to ask about the teachers who helped you find your way to transitioning into composing, and how they might have. We were just speaking about it the other yeah. day. Yes. Yeah, and I have so much gratitude for mm -hmm. some you know extraordinary musicians who were very generous to me i think the that improvisation began leading me to composition as uh, jackie byard who was a big influence on me and, and an important teacher of mine used to say improvisation leads to composition but he encouraged me to transcribe my improvisations and to, you know to, to listen to them and to record them and to write them out and i, I did that and i I tried to write in an improvisatory, with an improvisatory feeling. In, in college, the rage, the vogue was serial composition, 12-tone music. You have to do a lot of pre-compositional thought before you can begin to put notes, to begin to choose your notes and, and write. It was a technique that I learned and that I worked in at the beginning, but it, it didn't feel... Um, as expressive to me as, as you know, the kind of work I later came to. I went from there to, to jazz composition, you know, writing a jazz tune that had, you know, melody and chord changes and improvising from that and began orchestrating those things, you know, for different kinds of ensembles. And then I kind of dismissed all that work, like sort of said, okay, that was, I was playing around and I didn't really know what I was doing. And I found a teacher who, um, who really helped me. Lawrence Widows, who taught at Juilliard, was a, a composer, a, a theory, of, like they didn't call it theory at Juilliard, they called it literature and materials, L&M. Oh, yeah. And Larry was a student of Vincent Persichetti, and he kept saying to me, well, what do you hear? What, what is it you're hearing? Okay, how does that go? And we spent a lot of time with that idea, just what are you hearing, without judgment. And so I would write what I heard, and then he started asking me after about a year, he said, okay, where's it going? Where are we going? 
So we began to have trajectory and arrival points. And he helped me a lot. He worked with me a lot on orchestration, too, which came in very handy, you know, for this cello concerto because I wasn't sure I knew how to do it. And then as I was sitting writing, I, I heard Larry saying, what are you hearing? Okay, I can do that, you know. And I realized I actually knew how to do it, which is exciting. So, you know, I, I tried different harmonic languages on for size to see what was what's the most um you're trying to you're trying to compose your autobiography i think i think every artist whether they're intending to or not is creating their autobiography or some some form of it you know what what sounds are most me what sounds are most you and i i got involved with olivier messian's language it became an important language for me those modes that kind of modal approach he was using and um i've somehow or other found my way to tone more tonal music traditionally tonal music the kind of tonal system that let's say brahms brought to such an extreme extremely refined place um, that's that's the language i i think i respond most to now Yes. Although, you know, the possibilities are open, and, mm -hmm. and I don't know what my next piece is going to be, what language it will use. Right. And so much... Yes, what were you drawn to if you could speak uh, of some of the uh, composers and uh, musicians who inspired you? Say, as a, a young musician, and, you know, for different stages of your life, you mm. found... That, that just, sure. Yeah. Sure. The, you know, great question. Um I loved um, marching band music as a little kid. Uh, right. I, I loved it, like parade music. Oh my god, what freaking exciting stuff! Um, a big deal for me was uh, when I heard Jimi Hendrix, and that quality of duende that he had. You know that you're trying to somehow expand your conception of existence, expand your consciousness through music, and sort of breaking out of. What, what holds us back. Hendrix was huge for me. Uh, Charlie Parker was a revelation to me. Bill Evans, is, the sensitivity of Bill Evans and the poetry in his playing, his, his, his chord voicings and voice leading, and the, you know, the sort of the childlike soul, that, you know, the, the, the tenderness with which he could turn a phrase was, was very, um, it, it, it found, it, it touched me deeply. Bill, Bill Evans playing and then when I started getting more into composition it was Debussy was my was my star was my was my guiding light Debussy and then the kind of um, earthy rhythmic feeling of Bartok its connection to folk roots so Debussy and Bartok were, were are sort of my grandparents musically with a side, with a stream of American music like barrel house, piano, and blues, and jazz. And then I discovered, you know, after Debussy, that my parents were, say, Messian, and on the Bartok side, uh, Ligeti, Georgi Ligeti, mm -hmm. a great Hungarian composer. And that, that became the, uh, still with the stream of American music. I'd say if you wanted to sort of chart my um, my influences those would be the places to look right and and also we've spoken about you having inspiration from paintings 
and you're married to the painter uh, Margaret Garrett. She's a former dancer, and you've done notable collaborations with uh, choreographers. Yeah. And if you'd like to s speak about that <coughs> and what, how composing for dance has, has varied. I know you've also done some for film as well. Yeah. I haven't done as much film as I'd like, but yeah. um, with dance, uh, well, first of all, I love collaborating. I, I love that mm. there's somebody else you can bounce your ideas off of. Mm. I love that there's, you know, two heads are better than one. If it, mm. if something has, if I think it's good and the collaborator thinks it's good, then it probably is good. Yeah. So I loved working with Anne Reinking because she would have very specific ideas. You know, she'd call me up and she'd say, okay, Bruce, there's this scene. It's, this is what's going on. It starts like this with this kind of feel. It changes to that. And, you know, then it ends with this. And, you know, suddenly you have a map that you're working with, which is so much more um, workable for me than, you know, facing the void and not knowing, not knowing what to do. Because, you know, anything's possible. So when you suddenly, any parameters you can, you can establish are helpful to creating a form, to generating a form. Yeah. You know, I, I love that. I, I, I can't wait for my next collaboration, whatever it may be. And it's so nice the meaning that they add to it or ask from it, and because of music can be so abstract. It's, but you know, I don't know. Uh, you were t telling me before. Well, you compose. You don't compose with words, and that. No, I, I do compose with words. Ah, you I, have. I, I, I mean, I don't write the words myself. Oh yes. Oh, words are extraordinary to work with, because they're so evocative. Sometimes, mm -hmm. as an experiment, I'll pull out an adjective or an adverb or something. Mm -hmm. And I'll just see. Okay, let me. It's like flash fiction, musical flash fiction. Can you can you respond to a word and say a word like you know, mysterious? Right there you are. Yeah. Barbaric. Mm. And so sometimes I'll I'll read a story or a poem, and a phrase will jump out, and I'll say, oh, I need to respond to that. Like a, like the Keats project, the Darkling I Listen. Yes. That was all um, reading his work and then having a phrase, you know, just be, well, you have to be open to it, but suddenly it's something will trigger a musical response. You say, okay, I hear it now. It triggered the reverie. And, and, and the reverie for me is sound. And how do we teach? That's lovely. And we did a kind of experiment of back and forth music. And we I should do more of that. That was fun, yeah. I want to. It was very fun. Even if it doesn't hit perform or whatever, I just, I love it. Because it also inspires me listening to your music, to write something in course it's like a conversation yeah. in different languages <laughs> um, but how do we teach that kind of openness and creativity to I mean it seems to me it's just we the creative process is an educational initiative and it seems to me uh, so much of education is like goals based test based and and that kind of openness uh, except there are, there are notable exceptions in schools it's it's not something that we're teaching our young artists, our young people. Well, okay, so can you teach creativity? Yes. And how? Um, I think the first thing you do is create the space for it. Like I so said, you need to have time. Like here, we're, that, This is what we're doing now, right? And, and then I, it needs to be safe for the person trying it. You know, you give them permission, okay. We're just going to make a mess. We're going to try anything. You know, there's no right and wrong. Let's just try something, see how it feels. And, you know, the whole concept of art 
becomes a little heady and pressurized. But I think if it's just you know making sound, let's let's make some sound, you know, let's make some music without without it being you know music in capital letters. Yes. You know, um, so I, I've experimented with kids doing this and, and asking you know um, how let's see, pick a word pick a word you know, from these little scraps of paper that I tear up. I write you know fifty or sixty words. Yes. Someone will pull something out. And they'll try it, and then it's okay. Let's pick two. So you say you'll have cold and exciting. So already, it, it's there's a there's a, a unique psychological, like psychic place mm-hmm. where that exists, that combination. And, and I, that's your creative orchestra project. Where could you speak more about that in detail? Oh, sure. It started yeah. at um, there was no music program at the school where my kids went. And so I went in and wanted to teach the kids about process. I held up a painting, Starry Night, which was the first experience I had of hearing music in response to painting. And I said, does anybody hear music in their head when they look at this painting? And they looked around, they looked at me like I was weird. And then one little girl raised her hand, and they're like, God. Then suddenly she's I do. And suddenly all the other kids, I do, I do. And they got competitive <laughs> with each other. You know, well, what are yeah. you hearing? How do you make that sound? Can we go get some instruments? Can we get some? How do you make? You know, there weren't even always traditional instruments. Sometimes it's, you know, if you're scratching a, a twig on a garbage pail lid, that's the sound the person wants. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever the sound is. And there, were, of course, there were traditional instruments too. And so we started making our own form of scores and performing. And the kids were playing and conducting each other's stuff, mm-hmm. and uh, gave performances for a number of years. So it was a workshop I would do for uh, three weeks a year. Right. No, and it's lovely also to be in touch with people who are really, or people, children, who are really still so in touch with the joy of music, not the pressure of performance. I mean, is that what you found when you were... Yeah, there was a lack of self-consciousness. Yeah. The older you got, the more self-conscious people were. Yeah, you needed like better <coughs> twigs or <laughs> more tune my twig. Well, yeah. well, no. You know, the thirteen, the, the, yeah. the older kids, they don't want to look stupid. They're yeah. afraid of look. They, you know, there's there's a bigger embarrassment factor, yeah. and and you know, wanting to look cool or wanting to look adept, and you know, the younger kids are a little are, are more free that way. I was interested because you you really have you know done all sorts of music and it seems you're very open in general to ideas and you share with me you know what you're reading you had a number of notable friendships with writers uh yes if you want to speak more about that i know painting has been the big inspiration for your music but you know what does literature give you and what about your friendships with uh writers and other mediums well i'm in awe of people who work in the other idioms. Yeah, I think it's astonishing to me that people could, you know, write a great book or make a great painting or dance something. I'm so in awe of them. And, you know, there are things in common from discipline to discipline, and, and there are also, you know, contrasting elements. So that's always a, an interesting conversation to have with people, you know, as you're looking for commonality and making distinctions also. You know, I'm, I'm drawn to creative people. I'm, I'm drawn to people who like ideas and who want to discuss ideas. I, I think they're, you know, chefs, cooks. Uh, oh, yes. You know, they're, they're, I don't know. They're my people. 
<laughs> yes, I would. I was thinking you were talking to me, speaking to me the other day about Yale Doctorow, or what was that insight you shared? With about him? Yes. Uh, I, I mean, I didn't know him well, but I, I knew him a little, and we had some interesting conversations. And let me see. We talked a lot about Shostakovich string quartets because he loved those. Yeah. And we talked about James Joyce because I was having trouble reading Finnegan's Wake, and he told me to try it at the cocktail hour. <laughs> <laughs> This, um, yeah, I th- I've heard that's this advice, or also try to sing it, you know. Try, try to sing to, Finnegan's Way. Or sing, <coughs> recite it, or listen to it, like it's music, because he was musical, he was a tenor, yes, I've heard the different, and it, it, it opens up on a whole other level, I think. Uh, but I think with a lot of, actually, with a lot of writers I admire, there is that musical quality, you know, and it feels, the ones that I really do admire have that uh, they're not just logical sentences that our mind makes sense of. Well, because yeah. words make sound and mm-hmm. have, have a musical resonance to them, yeah. some, and some people more than others. Yeah. yeah. Hi, my name is Mary McCluskey. I'm a music and psychology double major at Fordham University, and I'm a student contributor to the creative process. As a college student double majoring in music and psychology, I thoroughly enjoyed Bruce Wolosoff's analysis of the loss of creativity and the struggle to make the music his again. It was fascinating to recognize the social and developmental psychology behind his observations and to recognize the struggle for creative thinking that I and many of my peers have experienced while creating. Our society praises gifted musicians, artists, and inventors, and many wish they were more creative, yearning to be more capable problem solvers, better writers, and outside-of-the-box thinkers. Yet this trait is quickly dismissed as many believe they are simply incapable of possessing such a trait and quickly move past it. If creativity is such a desirable trait, why is the social norm to lack it as adults? The creativity of children is widely celebrated, yet once children reach a certain age, their endeavors receive much less support. Is creativity something that we should grow out of? Are those who possess it later in life simply childish? Or is it something that we are wrongfully forced out of? The majority of our first experiences with social conditioning come from early education. Students are taught which answer is right and which is wrong, and in many cases this information is important. Children should know that 7 times 8 equals 56, that plants need water and sunlight, that an adjective describes a noun. School is meant to prepare children for adult life, and these are things that adults should know. But a problem arises when the methods with which children are taught become constraining and children are taught how to solve a problem, or how to draw a bird, or how to write a poem. When one method is labeled as wrong, children begin to strive towards correctness to avoid the shame that comes with making a mistake. This detrimental process may also occur if a student takes music, art, or dance classes, reinforcing the right-wrong binary found in the classroom. Through this process of labeling right and wrong and penalizing mistakes, we are socially conditioned out of creativity. Many that want to be creative are afraid to make mistakes, Yet mistakes are a central element to creativity. When we are raised in the binary of good and bad, it can be hard to break out and truly create. I believe that a musician struggling to create anything new must take a step back. A composer will miss out on a lot of inspiration if they solely listen to the music with which they were taught. One who wishes to explore beyond the palette of the general public should look to musicians often forgotten by society. 
They should listen to music of different origins, different time periods, from composers of different races, ages, religions, genders, and backgrounds. From this, the composer may begin to understand why her predecessors were not celebrated for their creativity, but rather shunned. They may begin to ask, what makes them different? Realizing differences between creators helps us to step outside the realm of correct and incorrect art. Moving away from this binary can help us learn to embrace mistakes, to overcome shame and creative blocks, and make us more accepting as artists and as individuals overall. If you're just joining us, we're talking with classical composer, pianist, and educator, Bruce Wallasal. So I want to, because you also did that work on, we were talking about blindness and a Helen Keller, a light in the dark. Yes, how, well, how was that? Well, okay, that was, um, that was an interesting experiment. That was, um, that was a ballet for Anne Reinking and Melissa Thodos, and for Thodos Dance Chicago, a company which was around for 25 years and just closed last year. We had done The White City together, which was a wonderful project and a really, really special piece. They called me up a couple months later. Maybe they'd been reading Finnegan's Wake, I don't know. But they called me up in a good mood, and they had an idea for the next project. Let's do another one. And they said it was going to be about Helen Keller. You know, my first reaction was panic. I I thought, you know, I, I I didn't think they meant it, you know. But they did mean it, and there was, and it was an interesting. I didn't go far enough in that piece into entering inside Helen's world. I think what I did in that piece was I created a a narrative for the um, for the family drama and a sort of a setting and placing it in in the time period it was in and. I told the story, but I think if I had it to do all over again now, I would use I would use electronics, also, oh. and try to enter more um, and create a more uh, rarefied atmosphere for Helen's interior world. That, okay. that was something I didn't address in that piece that I wish I had. Well, you know, I, I, again, it was a it was a it was fabulous collaborating with people. There was some time pressure around that, and you know, I remember making decisions, thinking like, okay, well, I have to do this quickly. It's you know. For the coming season, and it was orchestrated for a like an eight or nine piece group. So, and it had to be had to deliver a, a recording. I didn't have as I, I didn't go into the electronics then, and I wish I had. Yes, yeah. but now it's interesting because you can revisit, and at the moment you're working on a piece that's revisiting ideas or compositions that you did. What is it in the eighties? Like the, well, okay, so. <laughs> So after the experience of working um, with the Royal Philharmonic and deciding that, yeah, I, I love writing for orchestra, I'm thinking, okay, what, what kind of shape is my orchestral catalog and what have I got? Because this cello concerto is going to be played once the recording is released and Sarah starts touring with it and then other cellists will likely pick it up. And So I'll be in situations where it would make sense to, there may be opportunities, you know, to get other orchestral works played and maybe even have a chance to write new orchestral pieces. So, yeah, I'm, I'm going back in my catalog and take, finding a couple of things that would make good orchestral works that I could fairly quickly convert and adapt. So, um, so I'm revisiting some music from the late 80s and um, seeing, it's interesting to see what mistakes I consistently made then. 
One mistake was that I didn't let ideas go on for long enough. I was insecure that I wasn't being interesting, so I would sort of change tack. So an idea didn't have its um, wasn't wasn't allowed to go as far as it needed to go before changing. And another thing was over doubling. I didn't. I don't need to have the timpani and the cello doing the same little figure. Pick one, you know, and again, that's a sufficient color. So things were over doubled. So a lot of it was streamlining, and then streamlining the instruments, and then expanding the pacing, and then, you know, then you know, cutting out the parts that are bad. <laughs> <laughs> the, the editing part is so important. That's yeah. the thing. You have to kill your darlings or whatever the cliche is. How do you know that? How do you develop it? Are you, I don't know, how, how much time also do you wait between listenings? I don't know. Right. I mean, well, I'm, in this case, we're talking about pieces from a long time ago. Yeah. You know, from 30 years ago. So, so they've, they've sat in the drawer long enough. They've, yeah. So now, now I can approach them with a fresh, with a fresh ear. But part of the process for me on an ongoing basis is to write something, put it down, let it rest, pick it up again, put it down. And it takes a number of uh, successive passes through it until it starts to feel like, okay, I, it's been proofed. Like, you know, you mm -hmm. proof when you're yeah. making bread or, you know, you're making it, you, you, the yeast rises, you're proofing the batter. So you have this waiting period uh, and you and you can be fresh again, and you go back to it. And, and are you sometimes, is that possible to work on more than one at the same time? Or yeah, how sure. many can you do? Sure. I, I prefer one or, or two, not more than that. And then the other things, you know, if you get an idea, you, you, put it, you make, take your notes, and then you put it in a folder. You say, okay, I'll get to that when I have time, when, you know, when this project is done. That's a certain kind of discipline that's been um, hard for me to cultivate. My friend Sebastian Courier is so focused. He works on just the piece he's working on now. You know, just this part of that piece. He's, he's, very, um, he's very, very disciplined that way and focused. I admire that so much about him. I'm a little all over the place when I write, when I'm, I have a tendency, oh, what's this, what's that? And, you know, because you can pick up all these pages of sketch that are around and, and oh, what, what happens next with that one? Okay, let me do that here. And you expand, okay, I can go for that before, and you start to and you know, okay, I need to put this in the middle, and you get these very interesting-looking pages of manuscript that that have um, a lot of arrows and numbers. Mm -hmm. You know, you'll do this first, two, two A, two B. You know, and you keep adding little things and changing little things. But then, with those little sketches, you have to say, at some point, it's either going to become a piece or it's not. And you can't always, from the bottom up that way, generate. A large-scale form, yeah. you know. Are you thinking from the top up, the top down, or the bottom up? So, from from the top down, you, like you know, let's say I'm going to write a string quartet, and you make certain very basic decisions. Okay, it's going to it's going to it's going to start fast, and it's going to start loud. Okay, so I already I already know something about how fast, you know. So you pick a tempo, and and you start to work your way down. To understanding it, and it's going to change. Does it change? When does it change? What does it change to? And you create a form that way. You know, alternatively, you have your materials, your little sketches. Okay, you, you hear an, an idea in your head. It's not part of a piece, but it's a nice theme, or it's a nice something. You know, a nice rhythm. And then you ultimately have to find a home for it. And so you're trying to create a form 
almost like putting together a puzzle. But, yeah. but you know, when you get a jigsaw puzzle from a store, you know it's going to work. Yeah. Unless a piece is missing. But in this case, you don't always know. So sometimes you're piecing things together and you never quite get all the way to a complete piece. I like working with sketches, but the pieces that end up being pieces are the ones that there's a conception to, you know, fairly early on, some kind of overarching conception, or, or at least you know what it's for. Yes, I was amazed as you shared some of your process that how how brief the sketches could be. You know, they're just like, I mean, just how many seconds? You know, you have all this like a catalog. You shared with me your catalog sound segments. You call them sketches. Um, yeah, so uh, basically I'd get a new um, synthesizer program mm -hmm. and, you know, they have all these sounds that are presets that are built mm -hmm. in. So I tend to go through and if and to hear the sound and if something suggests music, I'll do a quick sketch mm -hmm. of what that's, what kind of sound that music suggests to me. Mm -hmm. And so <clears throat> I've worked through Omnisphere, oh, Absinthe, Massive, a couple different uh, synthesizer programs, software synthesizers. And, you know, then if you like it, then you, maybe it'll suggest the music. And right. These things uh, never become pieces. But you just have it. It's like an like endless... I have to always relate to what I understand. It's like an endless palettes that you have or endless letters in an alphabet that you don't... You just won't... You, you just have it there. I don't know. I'm looking for something... So this past fall, I, I started pulling them together and organizing them and just said, okay, what have I got all this junk around, especially now in the digital age, you know, you have voice memos and, you know, all kinds of computer files. And I found a, found a way to load my voice memos onto the computer mm -hmm. and I went through them and, you know, I'm either going to throw it out or I'm going to put it, you know, I, I noticed patterns like... One really exciting thing I discovered was that a lot of them had the feeling for me of the Odyssey. Let me start a folder called the Odyssey. I put so many things in this folder. And then, okay, what are the chapters of the Odyssey? Okay, let me break it down. Let me move this one in, uh, into that folder and move this one here, Circe. So there, were, there are certain projects that these things have found their way into, all this material. And in some ways, it's too much material. It's, it's more than I'm ever going to use. But then, you know, what are you going to start from? Are you Are going to start from nothing or are you going to start from something? Like trying to get these orchestra pieces together now. My fastest way to that is with pieces that, well, let me start with orchestra pieces I've written already that maybe never got played or got played when I was a student. Let's start with, you know, if any, are any of these good enough to work with? And if they are, then let me adapt it quickly. You know, you want to, you want to get things into the bullseye. Mm -hmm. And so... If it's almost to the bullseye, you're a lot closer than starting with nothing. Sometimes you're starting with nothing, and you, you what am I hearing? You hear something, and, and, and you begin a new piece that way. Other times, you're starting with material that you already have around and have developed to some extent. You know, it's almost like, um, like a compost heap. <laughs> and in terms of, you know, in your lifetime, and then from your knowledge of the way composers worked in the past, or... or are said to have worked. In how do you feel it has evolved? I know. I mean, you are, a, you know, you are a musician and a composer. But I, I guess there are some 
composers now who really don't know their instruments, or how do you? What do you feel about that? Yeah, there are a lot of composers today who um, who have no traditional schooling. Yeah. In music, I have a I have a good friend who has a significant career. I'm not sure he knows the difference between a major chord and a minor chord. He might, he might, but he has something. He has a way of expressing himself. He's carved out a language for himself, and um, and it's effective. And he works in film and makes a lot of money. And I should probably take lessons from him <laughs> because he has acts. You know, he his his idea was that the. Um, theoretical understanding might he was afraid would block his right. his flow with what he does you know i don't really know how other composers work i wish i knew more i wish people would show me we don't really um talk shop that way so much um do painters know how other painters work i th- i think you can kind of break it well i mean i imagine you might intuitively know but with painters you can see it like the layers are there i think so and I also have lots of conversations with yeah. artists, so they're right. kind of telling me. No, I know how my, I've, I've watched Margaret work. Yeah. I've watched Eric work. Uh-huh. Yeah, and my old friend Thorpe fight. I know his process. Yeah, it's, it, I love seeing painters' process, and, and actually I try to mimic that to some extent if I can. Mm-hmm. The way that they will block something in, you know, and then refine it later. But you don't, you, it's more private often with composers that they don't share. It's more mysterious. It's it's mm-hmm. hard to, it's hard to say what you know. What did I do? I looked out the window, mm-hmm. and I heard something, in my mind, and I went. I, I repeated it a few times, and then I went over to the piano and played with it a little bit, and got it to the point where, okay, I thought like, okay, I should write this down. You know, I'd pull out the pencil and paper and write it down, and and then say what happens next. You know, and maybe something happens next, or is there anything else that goes with this? You know, the ideas don't necessarily come out in order. In fact, mm-hmm. for me, they usually don't. Which is another thing that amazes me about Sebastian. He goes from beginning to end, just works his way through the piece. Me, sometimes I'll hear something, and I, you know, it's like the middle somewhere. Mm-hmm. And okay, how do you get there? Mm-hmm. You know, how do you get at? How do you go from there? And so I have, I have to somehow. A lot of my writing is finding these different musical areas and then uh, composing transitions between them. So your children are, are both artists and you've yes. collaborated with uh, Juliet uh, Garrett. I've, I've uh, collaborated with both of them. Yes. Oh, with both. I didn't know. Yeah. And, and naturally, I'm just wondering what kind of advice or things that you, you want to make sure that they knew you know, starting off as, as artists. Well, don't listen to idiots mm-hmm. is the first thing because a lot of people are going to tell you you can't do what it is you want to do. And every, everybody has an opinion. Some opinions are worth more than others. You know, so you figure out who, whose opinion you trust, who's a good person, who's a safe person to show your work to at first because we're vulnerable. You know, they, they know how much Margaret and I value artistic accomplishment so I mean I'm pleased that they went in that direction although I didn't I didn't expect it from either and I, I certainly didn't demand it they were exposed Juliet had a um, a year of homeschooling when she was 13 or so I probably wasn't a very good teacher either that or I was a really good teacher I mean okay she wasn't so lucky getting me for science class 
But, but I taught her to make a really good cappuccino. Mm-hmm. And that after you make your cappuccino, you sit down and you write. So we had our parallel play. I would go write music. We'd make a coffee. I'd write music, and she would write something. And so sometimes she was writing um, language. She was she would write um, song lyrics a lot, and there were, she'd write in her journal a lot. She's a good writer. She got very into acting and, and theater and film, and she's good at it. Uh, but somehow or other, she decided while well, she was at Princeton that music was her calling, which you know in a way didn't surprise me because she could read music on the recorder before she could read language. And she was exposed, you know, from being in the womb onwards. You know, her basket would be on my piano when I'd practice the Goldberg variations. And as a baby, and she was always singing and making up things. I used to tease her and call her operetta because she turned everything into a little song. And uh, yeah, so we we collaborated a couple of years ago on a musical that went no place um, with some writers, professional writers, movie writers, and. Um, it was fun, you know, sometimes we wanted to kill each other, and other times we were like an extension of each other's thoughts. There's, a, there's a, almost a telepathic understanding and appreciation. I, I have so much respect for her opinion. And, you know, she's writing beautiful songs now. Katya, Katya was a cellist from a young age. I mean, she was practically born with a cello in her hands, and she's really talented and really doesn't like practicing. And um, now she's in art school. She's a good artist. She's a good visual artist. She loves making things. And I wrote her a cello piece last year for, for her jewelry called Forkatia that she, had, um, she played very beautifully. Her Bach is wonderful. Um, and she rented, she's in art school in Italy right now, and she rented a cello the other day and is enjoying playing. So I don't know. You know, a professional, I, I don't wish the life of a professional cellist on her because the rewards are so few um, in the world. I, I, I want to clarify that. I mean, it's a hard life. It looks like a hard life to be a professional cellist. Are you gonna, you're probably going to end up teaching a lot. Are you going to play in an orchestra? Are you gonna, what are you going to do? Are you going to have a chamber group and play in orchestra and play and teach? And I don't know. She seems to like to play by herself most of all, although she's joining a community orchestra in Italy, I understand. Um, I, I think that's more for, I don't know. I'm, I'm thrilled that she's doing it. And I'm, a couple years ago, she told me when she went off to college, I'm done with cello. I, you know, I don't want to answer to you about this, because I used to drive her to her lessons you know, up in Port Jefferson, which was like an hour and a half away, because that was where the nearest good teacher was. And I sit with her when she practiced. and We had a lot of, you know, we played together, which was great fun, you know play Brahms together, Bob, whatever, you know, kind of things we were playing. And, and we play well together. Um, she's a beautiful player. I don't know, she's complicated about it. But maybe she's finding her way back to it by herself now, you know, now that I'm, I'm out of the picture and, you know, any expectations. Um, and she's a good artist. She, she makes things. She's always made things. You know, you saw the rocks that she painted when she was little, and you know, she's always getting experimenting with inks and doing different things. She's got a potter's wheel and she makes she makes stuff with a blowtorch and metal and she draws and she paints. She's working with marble now. 
I, I'm not sure what's going, what's going to come out of any of this. I, I know that to be a creative artist of any kind, you need a tremendous amount of drive and a type of ambition. Enough ambition to complete pieces and push them into the world in some way, even, a, even if it's a limited way. You know, it remains to be seen how much of that somebody has once they leave school. I, I love that. I love that. She, I love her talent. I, I, I rejoice in her talent. I celebrate it. I don't know what her what her life calling will be. Life's calling. She's an empathetic. She might be a therapist or a social worker or something like that. That's also that's also possible. Yeah, it's and then sometimes and then practice the art for the joy of art. You know. I hope not. that's the relationship she has with Cello. That mm-hmm. you know she'll do whatever she does and then you know play a box suite because that she loves it or maybe you know I, I don't know what music she will play I was interested in this is like changing track again but you had you were talking about our relationship to music in terms of interpretation you were saying that before Beethoven you felt that there was more freedom of interpretation yes and in a way something is lost yeah, I think, I mean, well, it used to be that performers also were sort of schooled musicians who understood harmony and um, most many people were composers. You know, you were, you were a complete musician and then there came a, a split and you had specialists and you had people who were composers who didn't necessarily have a performing background and you had performers who had, you know, I've met classical performers very, very proficient classical performers who have never improvised. I, I don't understand that. When you're given a scale, when you're learning a scale, it's not just about playing it fast or, you know, with a certain technique. It's a musical material. You know, what, what music do you make with that scale? I think it's doing, it's doing music a disservice not to, approach, not to understand the materials by inhabiting them by trying them for yourself, you know, then you understand, oh, well, oh, that was an amazing chord change that, that Schubert did here, an amazing modulation, because, you know, you've tried working with that material yourself, and you don't really know where, you know, what to do with it, and you say, oh, well, what a stroke of genius, you know, it, it's, it's, it's astonishing what, how great these great composers are, and I don't even think you can begin to understand it until you enter the world as a as a participant right. and so I, th- I think that musicians used to have more freedom to to embellish and to um, particularize to super compose um, a piece a performance a good performance would be a, like a super composition any any good composition can yield a number a range of possible interpretations right and and some people's interpretations are so strikingly unique that you know you say, okay, that's that's a, that's interpretive genius. You know, what what Gould might do to Glenn Gould might do to something like it or not. You know, um, Rachmaninoff. Rachmaninoff was so specific in his interpretations. He'd say he'd make a decision, and I think you know these are these are musical thinkers. Um, and so I, I think that you know back in the back in the golden age, what is the golden age of 
classical music was the 19th century, wasn't it? Um, I think that people were playing things with a lot more freedom and embellishment. And, you know, Beethoven said, you know, don't do that to my piece. And, and things changed. I, although I think, you know, after his death, I imagine some of the... the I, I, did Franz Liszt, when he played Beethoven, never insert a trill? No, I'm pretty sure he did. I'm, I'm pretty sure he did do things. These days, the improvisers are... It's a, you know, it's a different world. You have um, the, the, the jazz musicians showing us so many different interpretations of a standard, of a standard song. I think there's a freshness in approaching that material that I wish classical musicians had. I'm just guessing or I'm wondering the reasons for it. Is it because we just aren't, the general public just isn't as educated musically, or maybe educated isn't the right word, but familiar and comfortable, so they maybe our audience is pushing it too that I, w I want to see the, the definitive performance that's not so widely is, does that I, I, I wouldn't I don't just blame the audience I, I blame you know music training and musicians mm -hmm. I, I think you know it's up to musicians to to be curious and to have you know to to understand music yeah in um, you know and so I, I think Specialization has something to do with it. You know, if somebody's being trained to play in an orchestra, maybe they feel they don't need, you know, the competition is so stiff for these positions. Maybe they don't want to waste time on a harmony class. I don't have time to improvise. I just need to learn this thing for my next audition. You know, and, and kids are, you know, put through these systems where you where you have to move on. You know, you have your your juries and, you, and you're graded. And, and, and the, the lesson plans are tend to be rigid. With regard to the, the audiences, the, 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 your comment, I blame the, um, I blame marketing just as much. Yeah. You know, that there, how many, how many, there's so many recordings of one piece, which one are you going to buy? So I, th I think that, well, I, you know, you can't blame record companies today because they barely exist. Yeah. You know, used to, there was a system of um, weeding out some kind of Darwinian system where certain kinds of talent rose to the top. And some of it had to do with um, how people looked. Mm. You know, some, oh, we I do, I think yeah. so. I think that there were people who were, who were marvelous players who didn't get the same opportunities as, as other people because they didn't maybe look the part as well. Mm. I, mean, I, I remember people like that in, in music school who, you know, who weren't necessarily the ones getting all the attention. It's, it's I think strange. People, people are shallow that way. Yeah, I, I've heard stories too, but even in dance, and some ballerina being told she had to have a nose job or whatever. And I think, oh, it's your body, it's not your face. But, you know, it's like these pressures. Um, but, you know, there I, I understand if there's a look mm -hmm. that's appropriate to a piece that somebody's doing. Yeah. A choreographer has an idea for a piece, and mm -hmm. this piece involves certain body types certain because mm -hmm. they're shapes yes. bodies that move a particular way that look a certain way you know say there's a dance that involves all African American dancers I have no problem with that mm. for me that's not racism yeah it's it, just realism yes yeah. yes it's, it's what are you what's the look of the piece how mm -hmm. does the piece go and so I could see okay well that dancer's body type is not right for this piece 
but you know, then you have companies saying, well, you know, Joffrey likes short people. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, you know, and, and and how ballet bodies tend to be fairly emaciated. So uh, you know, I I don't know that it's healthy in a systemic way like that. I think if you're basing it on a particular composition, then I could understand it. But if you're saying, well, this whole genre, you know, is only for skinny people, um, I think, yeah, I think you're losing something. I sim- I like to see more normal bodies dancing. Yeah, and because it become <coughs> can become like yes, it's not uniform, and, bec- uh, and I was thought too, but the Pacific Northwest Ballet as well, they have a more irregularity or tall dancers or whatever, and you can see them as you can imagine yourself in the role then as well, like it's a theater. It's like this is what these are what people look like. These are just people dancing. Yeah, you know. Yeah, uh, I hadn't thought about superficiality in the the classical or contemporary music world. Uh, what you're saying, I didn't know that that had, you know. Well, well, contemporary the contemporary music world. Uh-huh. Let Let's clarify is made up of a couple hundred people. Yeah. You know, uh, modern music, modern classical yes. music. You see the same people at every concert. You know, yeah. the same. I'd say there's about 300 fans, and mm. oh, <laughs> and yeah, and like you know, you see 30 people at this event, and you know, maybe 60 people at that event. And, All right. Um, Oh, a big audience would be, you know, a couple hundred people. That's a huge audience for a wow. modern music event, modern classical music. So how do we reach out to um, to other audiences, larger audiences, or people who don't know that they like it? How well, that's do we do it. That? That's it. You want mainstream performers to play your stuff. Yes. Yeah. You know, I'm thrilled that Sarah recorded my cello concerto with the Elgar concerto, and yeah. then she added some piazzolla arrangements for cello and strings so you know maybe people will be um, exposed to my piece who otherwise wouldn't you know the Elgar maybe feels a little uh, safer to them so much so much is branding and marketing I and maybe it was always that way but maybe because like because they've passed into history we don't see it you know but I can imagine you mentioned Beethoven. What was his marketing? What was the <laughs> all those things? Well, music was highly respected in those days, yes. in a way that it's not today. Mm. I think I think we, I think it's a completely different environment. You know, he, he worked for he worked. You know, he had a choice. Then it was basically, you worked for the court or you worked for the church. And then you know, in his day, there was publishing because there was a huge amateur market. Oh yes, you know, of people, course. Yeah. They, they didn't have recordings. They made music at home. Mm-hmm. You know, the latest sheet music, the latest Beethoven sonata. Wow. And I, I'd love to see some statistics on that on um, music sales, sheet music sales. Right. That would be interesting. You know, Moonlight Sonata was, was it a big hit in its day? It, it is interesting. Do you think? Well, that's the best kind of fans. To have. I mean, I don't know. Maybe you don't like it if, if everyone who's not who's amateur would be in, interpreting your music. Maybe it would sound. I love it. You I know? love it. I love yeah. anybody at all who's going to give my music the time of day. Yeah, I'm appreciative. Whether mm-hmm. they're listening, whether they're playing, mm-hmm. whether they're performing, whether they're performing it beautifully, whether they're performing it less beautifully, I'm thrilled that they're, you know, out of all the music that there is out there, that they would, you know honor my music with their attention because there's a lot of music out there you know and I, I'd love to be able to reach more people I'm, I'm, I'm not very good at that I don't put much energy into that mm. I was sort of hoping at some point somebody else would say 
oh, let me be the person who, yeah. you know. But then I, I wanted to keep my own publishing rights because giving away owner, ownership of your pieces, you know, when, you, when you're publishing. And, um, and I don't know that I want to do that. You know, I, I somehow think I somehow think that's bad a bad business idea. Mm. Uh, but I'll, if I hold on to them, maybe I can do other things with them. Right. Oh yeah. I try to hold on to rights where possible. So I have my own little, you know, Bruce Wallace off music publishing mm -hmm. company. And so, you know, sometimes music gets licensed for different things. Uh, I would love for my work to be in the world more. I, I welcome, uh, I welcome thoughts on that. Yes, I, it's not it's not something that I know about. But I think that definitely it comes down to, you know, maybe we're not honoring, as you said, we're not honoring music even from the time people are we do listen to music or popular forms. But you know, the education system is. I, I when I went to school, you know, music education was free. You know, it was not uh, in public school system. It was not uh, something extra. You know, you didn't have to search for it. But I don't know. I think it's has changed in, in recent years in America. Yeah, I, I think some some schools probably still do offer it. Mm -hmm. And you know, there's so many studies done about how good it is for your brain and for your other learning. So I, I wish it were more available. I, I, there's something though about the way music is treated. You know, it's a commodity now. It's background music. You know, it's music. You put it on while you do other things. Right. And how many people do you know will take a... Well, let me see. Let me, let me listen. To, I want to listen to the Beethoven strings. First of all, you can't listen to a whole CD of these things and follow it the whole way and pay attention thoroughly. There's, there's too much. You, you, turn, you tune out. But if you took one movement, if you said, let me try to pay attention for three minutes, you know, the length of a pop song, and, and really listen. Don't do anything else. Don't write in my notebook. Don't read my email. You know, just let me get real quiet and listen and do nothing else but listen for three minutes. It w it's a profound experience to, to really listen to a piece of music. I wish people did that more. And I wish people did that sometimes with my music where they're really going to listen. And listen through a decent speaker system. Don't listen through your computer. Don't listen through your phone. I mean, you know, crank it up and, and, and you know, have good headphones or good speakers and really listen. And that's not, listening isn't value today. So I think music is um, in some ways dying as an art form and it exists only to the extent to which it's a, a what's that word, a barrel, a barrel, um, a kind of stone that it exists as a compound when fused with other organic material. I think like so. So you have music with film. You have music with dance. You have music with television. But people aren't tuning into these things for the music. They're tuning into these things, for, you know, or music for uh, social, for club music, for dancing. Yeah. You know, th there's another activity that's associated, usually. A visual activity, and and music kind of piggybacks its way in, in in, in there, you know, so film music, TV music, dance music. And yet, definitely, those art forms would lose something essential, if not the. Often, I think you know, a principal ingredient without it. Uh, yeah, I, well, I don't know. 
and it, it would just be like without life what you're speaking of um, if you if you eliminate music from film I think there have been a few instances where they've not had music in film but I, just, I, I understand that yeah I understand that music enhances these other disciplines yes um, what I don't understand is why listening to music is not enough for people because mm-hmm. because it is for me yes. so you know so you have to start thinking in other ways then as you know you're thinking okay a stage work stands a better chance of attracting a larger audience than a chamber work would right yes okay so so you or you know you're trying to think what what medium what you know what medium are people interested in mm. and i can't say they're going to come to me. I also have to try to come to them and, and meet them part way. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you know. So I'm trying to work in different. I'm you know writing a stage work, uh, the great good thing I've been working on for a long time with my librettist Debbie Daniel Poor, mm-hmm. and we found this. My kids found this book by Roderick Townley, the great good thing, fantastic book, and I'm trying to make it into a, a family opera, th- oh. thinking that. That's something people might like to come to, there, but there, there's an event, right? Mm-hmm. It's just like just as there is just as watching TV or going to a movie is an event. I, I think the event of absolute music of you know going to hear a chamber music concert or a piano concert. The piano concert is a bit of an athletic event, right? All right, I, yeah, it's quite visual, yes. Yeah, this is you're going to see, um, you know, to see this person do this perform this Olymp- Olympic athletic event and mm-hmm. hopefully they won't trip and fall. It's <laughs> that high wire element, right? Yes. tightrope of watching a live classical concert. Yes, I don't, I don't know. And I, I should give it more thought. And I should actually ask people in other disciplines what they feel, how to make a contemporary classical music more mainstream and... So a painter makes a painting, mm-hmm. and do they think about, as when they're making a painting, are they thinking about, well, this is going to be presented in this way? And they do, right? Sometimes I guess they think they have a show coming up, yeah. and it'll be exhibited with these other paintings, so they're painting an entire show. Mm-hmm. And people go to art galleries. I think people go to art galleries more than they go to concert halls. Mm-hmm. But they're also free, too. It's free to go to. Yeah. You can get up and leave any time. Yeah. You just walk through at your own pace. Uh, and I think with um, also visual art, but I mean, all these things are niche, but uh, with visual art, I'm, it might have also benefited uh, from social media and the way everyone is kind of obsessed with sharing their, their experience of here I was in the museum or the gallery. Um, it may be easier to share that sometimes. Than it's, and it's fun to follow an artist on Instagram and sort of have a, like a, like, like be a voyeur of their diary. You know, if they're mm-hmm. showing you their works in progress, people don't usually do that. I guess they show, I finished this piece today, mm-hmm. or so-and-so came and saw my piece, and this is the piece. Yes, but I think that education is an interesting element um, because I think if people understood more, they really appreciate more. And, and that's why, you know, contemporary classical music or classical music, it seems 
because they don't, they don't have this education. It's not e easily accessible in, in many of our education systems. So th they feel ignorant, maybe. But sometimes maybe marrying it with people really want to learn. And if they feel they know enough about it, then they will follow it like that. And I think that the same thing exists for classical ballet. You know, they feel intimidated. There's an intimidation thing. And others, it's, it's kind of other art forms. They're kind of, they go in quickly. They don't feel they have to have any knowledge. When you say painting, they don't feel they have to have too much knowledge. I don't think you should have that. You don't need, as a listener, that you need to have a tremendous amount of knowledge to appreciate music. I think you just need to listen to it and pay attention. Mm -hmm. Yes. Just the ability to concentrate and listen. Ah, well, that's the other thing that's changing now. Yeah, and then right, and then the yeah. more you hear, the more you understand. Mm. I I guess there's one thing I would like to end on. We've discussed a little bit about education and how we might improve our education models. Yeah, how would you? What do you wish you had learned going? You know, before you embarked on a career as a musician composer, what do you wish you'd been told? How can we? How can we make better music teachers, better music schools, in incorporating that into our general education? Trust your own ideas. I wish I had learned concentration and meditation and um, things about like having a good work ethic. Marketing, you know, sad but true, you, you, you need it, right? marketing, branding, I guess all those concepts. Things I probably would have advised my kids against. But, you know, you see who's, you see who's getting the performances. Mm -hmm. You see who's getting the attention. It's people who are, are being marketed well and who are good at that, who have developed a brand. I've, you know, I've been resistant. There's probably, I don't know, maybe I can get more performances than I do. You know, if mm -hmm. I... I was willing to embrace that. People but the kind of music would be, music would change. The music might change. Mm -hmm. I mean, ideally, there'd be a market for what I'm already doing. Mm -hmm. but, but just, um, somebody has to be motivated about getting it to the public, or, or it won't happen. You know, whether it's me or an advocate at some point down the line. Me, I, I'm not so sure it's going to be me because I'm not that pushy. What I find fascinating is just our conversations about music. I feel like I've learned a lot, and sometimes I, f I do feel that you have a book or books in you that would really help explain it to people. I enjoyed an, an, another kind of musician, but I enjoyed David Byrne's book, How <coughs> Music Works. Hmm. And I think, I mean, just even this conversation is so illuminating. And that's a way of reaching those audiences and they think wow he has he has so much to say about this it's really helped expand my understanding yes and you've been after me for a while on this I know yes and I, I don't I, mean yes to and, and I, no and I think you're right and, and it's a fabulous idea yes um, and I'm open to it it's just that right now not now right now I'm trying to write orchestra music yes. so that's what I'm doing now yeah you know um, I don't know what I'm doing after that mm -hmm. But it could be it could be it could come maybe in the next phase, but it, it yes. would it would require, you know, a dedicated chunk of time, yes. and effort. You know, it's not just going to happen. It's mm -hmm. not going to happen with you know sitting down and writing you know for a few minutes a day. You'd have, probably have to devote some time to it. 
Yeah. Um, but I'll. I'll take it under advisement, and I appreciate your encouragement. <laughs> but you're so good with explaining your ideas, and uh, you know your work with children with the creative orchestra. And I really feel that there is a lot of curiosity, but also a lot of people feel intimidated. So it's anything that helps add to that understanding, you know, it helps build audiences for the future musicians and composers in the future. And I, and I would, I would love, to, I would read that book. <laughs> well, um, thank you so much, Bruce, for adding your voice to the creative process and all you've um, done to uh, expand my knowledge of music and others. It's been a pleasure, Mia. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews Producer on this podcast was Mary McCleskey. Assignment Editor is Sorella Lark. Digital Media Coordinator is Camille Montalino. The Loom was composed by Bruce Wallisoff. Has this interview sparked your creative process? If so, you can submit your creative works to submissions at creativeprocess.info for an opportunity to be included in the projection elements of our exhibition, Traveling to Leaning Universities, or published on our website, www creativeprocess.info. Want to get involved in exhibitions or interviews? Email us at team at creativeprocess.info.